Welcome back to the QAV podcast. This is the QAV Club Premium Edition, episode 11. Uh, Thank you for subscribing. Thanks for supporting the show. A little bit different today. Rather than do a deep dive on uh, a stock, we were going to do uh, that today, but then we had an opportunity that uh, we wanted to take up. We've got a special guest, uh, Joe Barberis, and uh, well, we when an opportunity comes up like this, you want to take it, and so uh, we're going to hear from Joe. It's a it's a great chat. He's um, fascinating guy with a wide range of experience, also an investor. So um, why don't I just kick over to Tony and uh, let him introduce our guest, Joe Barberis. Yeah, so hi Cam, with me today is one of my first bosses at Shell Australia back in the late 80s, mid to late 80s, Joe Barberis. And Joe has a long career uh, running companies in Australia, started off in Shell, uh, eventually went overseas to be the head of Shell in Italy for a few years, came back to Australia. He then ran what was called the Pacific Islands for Shell Australia, so that's all the islands outside of Australia in the Pacific, like New Guinea and Fiji and places like that. Uh, Then came back and ran Shell Australia, negotiated the sale of the service station network to Coles Meyer and went across and ran Coles Express, which is how Shell service stations exist currently. They're at least by Coles on the long lease. Uh, then ran office works at Colesmeyer and then left and ran a company called Harris Scarf, which was a department store retailer, and then went to run a retailer in PNG. And now I think is pretty much semi retired and running his own investments, much the same as I am. So I thought it would be good to have him on the show and welcome, Joe. Thanks, Tony. Hi, Cameron. Hi, Joe. Nice to meet you. We can pick his brains on investing and uh, his career. And you guys are uh, recording this from your property in Cape Shank, Tony, is that right? We are. I'm looking out the window now watching some guys... Trying to play golf. Trying to play golf on the eighth green. <laughs> <laughs> have, you, have you guys gotten in, got in any golf yet? Not yet, perhaps this afternoon. Life's pretty easy at the moment, so we'll pick and choose. Yeah. I played yesterday, I think. No, day before. Oh, yesterday, yes. And then Joe and another friend of ours, Bill Davidson, came down last night. Great. Joe brought down some of his uh, old wines from his wine cellar, so we had a nice dinner. Uh, and tonight we're going to a place called Jackalope, which is uh, a restaurant on the Mornington Peninsula, which we're quite keen to try. And um, I want to point out to listeners that the uh, echo in the background is because you're sitting in your... Uh, rather spacious dining room, Tony, down there. I am. It, it does have a high ceiling, which is probably causing the echo. <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> oh, well, um, Joe, uh, where do you, you want to start? In terms of investing strategy, if we jump straight into that and we can talk a little bit about some of your experience, I guess, as we go, do you, um, do you have a particular methodology or strategy that you follow with your investing that you can share with us? Sure. It's probably changed over the years, very much so. The, I was uh, probably an aggressive and highly speculative investor 
10, 20 years ago. Um, perhaps as you get older, perhaps as you get wiser, um, you can become a little bit more conservative. Um, so my sort of investment sort of strategy at the moment is that sort of transition from, I guess, working to retirement where you start to shift from um, uh, being prepared to sort of take some higher risk and higher return to something a little bit more stable and um, pretty much sticking to what I know best as well. So having worked at Shell for many years and then having worked in retail for many years, um, my portfolio probably reflects that because that's the area I know best. Um, not always successful, but you know you, you, you pick trends, you pick cycles, particularly in the commodities business. So when I used to work for Shell in the early days, um, Shell was actually one of Australia's biggest miners. So it mined uh, bauxite, tin, lead, zinc, gold, uh, as well as uh, quite substantial coal assets. And as an analyst, I had to sort of learn about those markets and that's held me in good stead. So you probably find a, a heavy weighting towards commodities in my portfolio, not, not because that's the greatest sort of um, uh, industry on earth, but because I know it well. Um, I'm probably a bit more reluctant to move into sort of, you know, manufacturing and probably to my detriment to, in, into technology, but they're not my, my home turf. So um, as I said, I, over the years, it's probably become a little bit more conservative and, um, but that weighting towards commodities and probably in the, in the last 18 months, two years, uh, a heavier weighting into gold. Um, I know gold's not always looked at as a, as a favourable investment, but the leveraging um, price movements through you know, some of the um, quality Australian and emerging Australian gold miners has, has probably um, been my, my most successful strategy in the last few years. And then sort of backing that up with some of the heavyweights like BHP and Rio, which again have had a great run over the last couple of years. Um, right now though, as I said, becoming a little bit more conservative, I'm uh, really thinking about you know, at what point do, do these more successful investments, do I sort of wind back from them and do I exit and just wait for a while and wait for the cycle to, to turn again or um, do I just reduce the weighting and uh, find something else to, to invest in. Um, property has also been a, a, a successful sort of investment for, for everybody but for me over the last 10 or 20 years as well. And uh, so, again, just finding that, that right balance, that, that more conservative nature. Um, I've got a little pool of money that I would use for speculative investments, and, and that's very much on the basis that if I lose it, I lose it. So it's, it's more sort of um, petty change. It's more fun than anything else, uh, you know, finding those, those penny miners and um, uh, just seeing how they, they go. So conservative, more conservative, um, starting to look at sort of some of the ETF uh, funds that enable me to invest in some of those sectors I'm not familiar with, but letting other people do it in, in either managed accounts or uh, letting the market sort of drive it on, on the index accounts. Um, so that's what I'm probably exploring at the moment. I'm building myself a, a little matrix of the various ETFs around the place and deciding um, how I'm going to merge that into my existing portfolio so that sort of over time it becomes uh, probably more stable and uh, more reflective of the general market. 
just for the uh, listeners who aren't familiar with an ETF, although I know Tony uh, did talk about it on a previous episode, can one of you give a basic breakdown of an exchange-traded fund for the listeners? Sure. So um, an ETF is basically a portfolio built by um, uh, finance houses or, or, or brokers that reflect particular parts of the market. So let me take gold, for example. I was talking about that. So a number of the ETF firms have gold-specific portfolios that they create to replicate, if you like, the, the broader market. So you're not investing in one gold company. You're, in fact, investing across many. Those investments will be weighted according to the markets that, that the ETF sort of follow. And as I said, the difference between, if you like, an index fund and a managed fund or an actively managed fund is that an index ETF fund will basically just follow the market. There's, there's no thinking behind it, if you like. There, If the market goes up, the, the ETF goes up and, and vice versa. If it goes down, fees are typically very low because for the broker, there's no, no real skill involved in it other than just keeping up with the market. Whereas the sort of actively managed funds, there's a degree of investment strategy by the manager where they won't necessarily buy all shares in that particular industry or group of companies, or they may be overweight or underweight relative to that. And then, you, then you've got, a, I guess, a third option, particularly in Australia, where you've got exchange protected or exchange uh, exposed funds as well. So again, taking gold, you can look towards a, an A-dollar hedge fund, so that protects you from falling or rising Australian dollars or other currencies, or you can just remain exposed to basically the US dollar price. You talked about staying on your home turf, Joe. So how, how important is your circle of competency in deciding where to invest? Um, for me, it's very important because you get to know the companies you're investing. You, you know, I've been following them for 10, 20, 30 years, and you get a sense of where their strengths are, their weaknesses, the opportunities that come up. I, I just really feel exposed, if you like, to companies that work in sectors that I'm, I'm not familiar with because you, you, you don't know the market, you don't know these companies well. So for me, working on my home turf gives me confidence that, that I'm in control, if you like. Certainly over the years, I've invested in things outside of that, often at the recommendation of, of brokers or advisors. Some of them have paid off, some of them haven't, and probably you know, lost a bit of money, certainly in the, the almond and olive uh, plantations, Great Southern and that. Following my financial advisor into that area, uh, in retrospect, was a mistake, but it was a lesson learned as well to say that I don't necessarily need to take the advice as gospel from, from others, that you know, I'm, I'll work it out myself. And if I succeed, that's great. And if I fail, well, I've only got myself to blame. But I, I sort of manage my portfolio a lot more actively than, than I did, say, 10 or 15 years ago. And to date, that's worked well for me because I've got that familiarity, particularly with the resources. Retail, just getting, getting onto that sort of is a lot more dynamic at the moment. It sort of, it used to run in waves, a bit like the commodity cycle. So, you know, taking the supermarkets, for example, you'll have Coles and Woolworths cycling over a couple of years and one will lead one and then the other one will take the lead and you could have some a degree of confidence in, you know, the next year or next couple of years, what's likely to play out. But the retail environment has become much more 
complex, much more dynamic, much more dangerous, should I say, as well, with obviously with the growth and introduction of online, the, the arrival of some of the international or many of the international retailers into Australia, the, the difficulties retailers face with landlords and, and high rents and particularly escalation clauses, not having the flexibility to move out of stores that, that, that weren't going well, wage pressures, trading hours, it's it's become really tough. Retail was never an easy game because it's sort of 24-7, but it's particularly tough at the moment with all these external influences. And I, I feel sorry for some of the retail managers in the, in the market at the moment because they would be finding it hard to work themselves through that. Having said that, there are some great, particularly Australian retailers, who've got a business model, it's working, and they're going flat out. So the likes of Cotton On, for example, fantastic company, really got their act together, whereas some of the sort of more traditional retailers in Australia are struggling. So to get back to your question, Tony, the sort of my two areas are, I guess, the commodities and the retail. Much less invested in retail because in, in Australia, at least, it's hard to find those progressive retailers who have continued success. Obviously, you've got sort of players like JB Hi-Fi, but... Again, they're finding the pressure at the moment quite um, challenging as well. I should point out that Cotton On is a private company. It's yes. not listed. It, it may list in the future, I guess, but at the moment you can't mm. buy shares in it. A, a few weeks ago, we looked at Meyer Holdings and we added them to our dummy portfolio. They've dropped 11.43% <laughs> since then. We, it's something we should talk about. What are, what are we going to do with Meyer, Tony? Oh, leave it for the moment. Yeah, I, I think it's it's... In the absence of any information, we can't make a change on that one. It, look, it'll bobble up and down for a while. The next checkpoint for me will be when the next set of figures come out and we can have a look at what it's doing. Okay. Well, I, I wanted to just follow up on something Joe said about the lack of progressive retailers in Australia. Why? As a complete outsider, Joe, I often wonder what's going on in our retail sector. Can you explain why we don't have more progressive retail operations in this country? Why the bigger players haven't adapted over the last 20 years? Um, Well, I wish I could be 100% sort of accurate on that, but the sort of my views are that the retail landscape has largely been shaped by the growth in shopping centres, in big malls, because the landlords until recently when they started to chase some of the overseas players typically had a format that said you know we need a Meyer at one end a David Jones at the other Coles or Woolies various sort of apparel shops and you would walk through you know whether it's Castle Hill or Chadstone or some of the big malls in in Brisbane and and you wouldn't know which state you're in it's the, the the malls were basically all the same the same sort of offers the same retailers and I think the industry grew a bit lazy as a result of that because they, they didn't have that competition that, that sort of drove innovation and, and new initiatives. And they got their growth just by virtue of sort of the landlord's expansion. And you walked down the, your typical main street and you had shops that were for lease and, and you know, people were struggling. And what's missing to me is the, the opportunity for entrepreneurs if you like entrepreneurial retailers to come up with an idea and and be able to get that into if you like the the shopping centers because though shopping centers were almost closed in my view were almost closed off to sort of new ideas because they were seen as as higher risk so you ended up with lots of franchises in the um, 
uh, or, 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 or similar brands in the shopping centre. So I think we choked off that sort of, in, in large, again, there are some examples around of some successes, but in large part, that, that entrepreneurial retailer was never really given the opportunity to, to grow their business and expand. And so at one end, you've got sort of, if you like, a lazies might be a too strong a word but a you know fairly sort of sedate traditional brands and down the end you had these sort of struggling entrepreneurs who who never really could get a a foothold and that that sort of created this environment where with the introduction of you know the growth of online and the introduction of all the international retailers coming in they've caught Australian retailers with their pants down and you know many Australian retailers are suffering as a result of that but there's there's People trying things and, you know, the two supermarkets, Coles and Woolies, are a good example there. They need to, to find new solutions, new ways of retailing, new offers, as well as keep, keep getting their costs under control or keeping their costs under control, I should say. Uh, or else they will find that, you know, LD, Costco, um, Kaufman, they're, they're all sort of will take away one or two or three percent here, which in a sense doesn't sound a lot. But, you know, in a supermarket business, one, two, three percent growth you know, is, is what you expect and, and, and almost determine success. But if that one, two or three percent's been taken off by other retailers, then you're in that no man's land of no growth, but increasing rents, increasing wages, increasing um, uh, utility bills and your profitability starts to suffer. And if I can just add to that too, I think uh, it's probably breaking down now, but in the past it was very hard for international companies to get a foothold in Australia. And the classic example, I think, was a company called Zara, which pioneered the fast fashion trend in Europe where if it was on the runway one week in Milan, it would be you know four or five weeks available in store when traditionally it was normally months and months before that would happen. Uh, so Solomon Liu, who's a big retailer in Australia, bought the franchise rights for Zara in Australia and just never opened it just to protect his chain of uh, <laughs> merchandise and stores. So that's breaking down as people are starting to get into Australia. But... You know, coupled with stories like that and also the the hesitance for shopping mall landlords to, to take a risk on someone coming in who may not be here for 10 years and serve out their lease, I think shut down that kind of international entry into Australia to a large extent. Now, I don't want to talk down Australian retailer too much because, you know, there are some great examples of some very strong retailers. Bunnings is a, an obvious example, JB... You know, even Harvey Norman, uh, Officeworks, what Kmart have done is, is, is exceptional. So there are some, some strong retailers out there, but if you like, they're, they're the exception rather than, than the rule. And some of the more traditional retailers like DJs, like Meyer, will continue to struggle and, until or unless they find the right niche. Uh, and it probably means they're going to be smaller, as I think uh, this, it's certainly Meyer starting to do at the moment, and much tighter. There are some trends in retail which are popping up now. What are your thoughts on, say, the trend to have influencers on Instagram recommend businesses and basically launch a whole online business in makeup or handmade or something like that? Is that something that's going to last? Is it something that's new? Is it something that you'd be interested in investing in? Yes, it, it, I don't know whether it's going to last. You know, the, the particularly, you know, digital technologies are. Um, are changing so rapidly whether it's here in five or ten years time with that degree of influence who knows where it's sort of breaking down into individual consumers so people get to choose what they look at and don't look at so the challenge for those digital media is to to, to keep 
enough of an audience or at least a targeted audience that gives them that, that capability. Yes, it does work. Just looking at my own two daughters and, and their shopping habits, you know, they, they are watching and listening and, and influenced to that to that extent. People my age, I think we're sort of over the edge now and much less susceptible, but we're not the future. So would I invest in, in that? I'm not, I'll probably invest more in the social media rather than the retailers who use it because it's probably the media that's got the value rather than the, the actual sort of recipient. The other thing which I probably just should add to, to what I was saying before is in the Australian environment, some of the tough elements are, for example, the rents. Some of the good elements at the moment out there that, that provide a bit of wriggle room for retailers are the low interest rates. For a retailer who holds a lot of inventory, the lower interest rates make that sort of much easier to handle. You could imagine if interest rates were double or double again, as they may well one day, pressure on those retailers to manage their inventory much more tightly than they already are trying to do will become a pressure point. So interest rates are something I'm watching at the moment in terms of that, that retail space. What are, you, what are your thoughts on interest rates? My thoughts are they're probably going to go down or stay flat for a long time to come. I probably don't agree with you on the long time to come. Certainly in the short term, well, they're virtually flat now. They've, they've, they've been flat for a long time. And even if they went down by 50%, there's still virtually nothing. So I don't think there's there's great benefits from downs from a lower interest rate. I think we're already enjoying those now. So the risks are that, that they go up from that sort of reserve bank range of what is it, one and a half percent to two to three to four to five. And I think one of the... Whilst we may not be able to see it at the moment, where that pressure is going to come from, markets throw up surprises. And, you know, it might be in five years' time we look back and say, well, we should have seen that coming. And we didn't because we're sort of in this sort of flat environment at the moment. But as I said, it's, am I expecting interest rates to rise? Probably not. But it would surprise me. No, it wouldn't. And am I thinking about it? Yes, I am. I think it's always worthwhile looking at the risk, but the interest rates in Australia at least are driven by inflation and I don't see any pressure on inflation. In fact, I see pressure on deflation. I mean, wages just start growing. Uh, there's no pressure to, for wages to grow. Union numbers are at their lowest in, as a percentage of the population. So I'm not sure where the forces are going to come from to drive interest rates up. And I, I accept that, but they will eventually. Right. And it's where that trigger is. You know, is it next month? Is it next year? Is it five years' time or is it 10 years' time? And as I said, it's just keeping an eye on it because um, sooner or later, you know, that some of those early pressure points will become obvious to us or become evident to us. Yeah. Getting back to international retailers in the online space, Joe, Amazon, eBay, uh, Alibaba, do you see them having much of an influence on the retail sector in the near future? Um, yes, I do. And uh, it's... You know, their, perhaps their rate of growth might be, um, might be slowing. I don't have the numbers to make that a call or not. But their, their impact already is, is, is there. And it's, as I said, it's taking away that 1%, 2%, 3% of growth that most retailers could have counted on 10 or 15 years ago. They're fantastic companies. And to assume that they're just going to continue on with their current business models and, and not themselves innovate and find ways to increase their sales would be naive. So they're... Great companies and probably worthwhile investing in them as well if you're going to invest in retail at all. But they're just more headwind for particularly local retailers. 
But as I said, you know, the, the Bunnings that came out of this world have shown that you can fight back and certainly through quality of products, through competitive pricing, through great branding, you can at least keep your head above water. I've got an article here from a Smart Company about a month ago about Amazon Australia. It said their revenue increased 1,500% in the most recent fiscal year. But uh, that only got them up to two hundred ninety-two point three million in two thousand and eighteen. So, still very, very small. But uh, yeah, it'd be interesting to see where they are five, ten years from now. And I, and I keep wondering why Australia never built our own Amazon. Why we don't have a big online retail presence that delivers something similar? Well, we we did have in the sort of, mm. I guess, early two thousands a, a number of early sort of versions of of that but they never really took off even Officeworks when I was there we had I think at that stage in the mid 2000s we were the I think the third biggest online Australian retailer through the B2B and B2C sort of channels but everybody else just sort of you know caught up and just zoomed zoomed ahead as the rest of the market became much better at that so I'm trying, I'm trying to remember. Was D Trade a D Store? D Store, that's right. D Store and Wishlist. Was it my? Was it? Or? No, so, that's so, right. So D Store, D Store was my competitor and Wishlist, and I ran my direct. Yeah. Uh, and my direct, when I ran it, was the biggest online retailer in Australia. I think. I think the real problem for online general retail in Australia was just Australia is so saturated with malls and mm. Kmart's and Targets and things like that. It wasn't hard enough for people to go out and buy what they need from the local store. Whereas, say, in other areas like the States, there was, a, a, a history of mail order, but, B, also the fact that there was a lot more remoteness. You wouldn't... I guess it's changed now with Walmart being so prolific, but it, it, it was different in Australia. We were just so concentrated on the eastern seaboard population-wise and then so well-serviced for shops that the only people who would necessarily buy from online were people who sought out online, so they were time poor, people who were in remote locations, so, you know, country towns, and people who had a disability and couldn't get to a store. So what's also changed now is you've got an entire population who's been, part of the population that's been brought up on the internet as Mm. well. So again, thinking about our daughters, you know, whilst we may have the view of, let's go down the shops, you know, they don't don't have to leave their bedroom Mm. to to do that. Uh, So they're much more open to... Mm online shopping and they they don't mind where that sort of online offer emanates from yeah and i know it, it, so in my daughter's example she's quite happy going on to etsy and places like that and <coughs> buying something from someone's backyard studio mm. rather than worrying about the quality of the merchandise and where yep. it comes from yeah and they're a lot well a lot better networked as well that that sort of you're talking earlier about the influences the the network between young people today the the recommendations amongst their the peers uh, plays a much stronger role in their purchasing decisions than I think um, it would for older adults. Mm. So on the retail trend side of things, if you spotted a new trend, would you get in early and, and uh, invest in, say, a business that wasn't profitable or was on a high PE, like an A2 milk, for example, selling milk into China or a, a Blackmore selling vitamins into China? Yes. I mean, if you could wind back the clock a couple of years, they, there'd be lots of great investments. So I guess that the hard thing is picking them mm. and, and accepting that, that risk. Mm. And as I said earlier, my probably my, my increasing conservatism wouldn't stop me investing in those, but it might, might reduce the amount of money I put into them because you, 
yes, you get might get one right, but for every one you get right, you might get one wrong as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me get let me get uh, back to that investment strategy approach of yours. You're talking about owning gold stocks, for example, and uh, I, I also own gold stocks and bought them a couple of years ago when they were cheap and they, they certainly had a good run. What stage in the cycle would you say we are with gold or iron ore or some of those commodities? Iron ore is probably an easy one. I think we're we're probably peaking now, so I'm sort of starting to to think. You know, do as I said earlier, do I start to reduce the exposure or get out altogether and just take the, the money and just sit it out for a little while? And inevitably with commodities, they go up and down. Mm. And so if you, you know, even if you buy at the wrong time, you, you only have to wait and sooner or later you'll be able to get out, generally speaking, without too much sort of bruising. But that iron ore, I think, I can't see it going much higher for much longer before it sort of takes a bit of correction there. Gold... Uh, again, just cycles. If you get out your gold sort of price over the last 20 years, it, it goes up and down. There's, there's times when it trends up quite strongly and obviously times where it sort of gradually drifts back down. That's where you need, or I find, you need to find a uh, not so much a gold producer but a gold sort of explorer that's moving into that production cycle because even if the price falls, you've got some increasing production and increasing profitability. If you can get both the gold price going up and some of those sort of um, growing companies. So, you know, the, the one I'm thinking about is Northern Star Mining, and it's just um, had some fantastic success over the last few years. And riding that that higher gold price when it does sort of spike up has produced some fantastic returns for for all its shareholders. Yeah, so including me. <laughs> yeah, and me. But but so, how do you pick that cycle? Are you looking? Are you paying attention to what's going on in the market or in economies? So, for example, Valet have closed down mm-hmm. production in. South America because of their tailings dam failure, and that's pushed the iron ore price up. Would you sort of wait six months and say that's enough of that, and I'll get out of iron ore? Or I'm, well, I'm actually thinking about doing it at the moment. So right. either reducing my exposure to it. I, I don't think I'd get out altogether because again, some of the companies in, involved in that have other assets that sort of protect it. But you still get a lot of volatility in companies like Fortescue mm-hmm. that that are more iron ore ex- focused, if you like where you would be or I would be saying, you know, well, if it's peaking about now, then, you know, reduce some exposure. If I get it wrong, well, I've still got some. But if I get it right, I can buy back in a bit, bit later on. Gold, I'm probably, I'm, I'm less worried about demand and supply in terms of the market. It's really just a day-to-day thing. So it's one of the first things I do get up in the morning is just see what happened overnight in the gold price. And if it's gone up 5 or $10, I know I'm going to have a good day. If it's gone down 5 or $10, my philosophy at the moment is, well, I'll wait until tomorrow. <laughs> and just... I guess the, the trick in that is, do you hold and uh, for a long time and then get out, or do you do you play? So you know, if it's over thirteen hundred dollars an ounce, then you might take some profit, and if it falls back to twelve eighty, you you buy back in and you you have some sort of almost day trades from time to time. That's fun. Do you make a lot of money? If you want to put a lot of money in, you probably can, but you can also lose that. So for me, it's just uh, around those fringes. I talk before about my sort of speculative nesting, if you like. That's the sort of thing I'd do in that, is just sort of, right. whether it's a couple of times a day or a couple of times a week or a couple of times a month, just, yeah, it's gone up. Will it go up? Who knows? But I'll take that profit and just wait until it falls back again, which it inevitably will. And But it's not foolproof because the price can continue sliding down. But as I said, you know, if you for most major commodities, there are major cycles and you, if you're able to, to pick those and buy in, not, not at the bottom or the top, but sort of get somewhere 
close to the bottom, then you, you're probably doing okay. Mm. And I think at one stage in the past, we were talking about your investments, and I think you're using some options then. Do you still use options? I've, I've gone off my options just over the last year or so. As, as I said, I trend towards that more conservatism. But funny you should say that because I just sort of, I've got a separate options account. I just went out the other day and put some money into that because I th- gut feel is where we're coming up to some more volatility in the, in the share market and probably downward risks rather than upward risks at the moment. So I'll just sort of keep that and it's, it's part of my speculative sort of play, but we'll just see what happens. So I'm, I'm ready to sort of pounce on some of that if I think we're sort of nearing the edge. Am I talking about a, a collapse? No, but just some downward pressure on the market generally. So could you explain to our listeners what kind of options you'd be buying to do that and how you would go about doing that? Okay, so I'd be sticking with some of the, the, the larger companies, so you know the, the BHPs, Rios type of, of companies where, again, you're not going to get big swings, but you can options give you the opportunity to, to leverage volume, if you like, either on the put or call side, so that you can make some pocket money. Is it is it what I'll be you know putting a, a substantial substantial part of my super in? Absolutely not. I'm not that good, and I'm not that sort of uh, prepared to take that, those risks. But it is fun, and it's a great way to learn how to play the markets as well, and, and what the traps are. Um, particularly when you're on, you think you're on a winner, and the options expire, and you, you're left with nothing. <laughs> uh, you only have to do that once. <laughs> So, so just to, to draw that out a bit, so the options you're talking about are listed on the ASX. Yeah. They have an expiry date that's 12 months hence? Or, or they can vary. So you can, okay. you know, can be anywhere between tomorrow and 12 months, yeah. And so you're basically making a call that, or you're making a bet that in 12 months' time, BHP will, will be worth more or less than what it is now. And you buy an option uh, as, a, as a small amount uh, so the option, BHP might be at $25, but the option is worth, say, $2. Yep. And uh, it gives you the right to get any upside in BHP or downside, depending which way you go. If you get it right. If you get it right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And I probably play the, the marginal option. So you, you mentioned sort of $1 or $2 on 25 I might be playing the, the $0.05. Cents. Right. Um, so you're able to really sort of right. um, get some leverage yeah. for your money. Yeah, okay. Just to drill down on this idea of options a little bit further in case some of you listening to this aren't familiar with it and Tony and Joe didn't really break it down uh, as much as you might want them to. An option, as I understand it, is a contract which gives the owner or the holder of that contract the right but not the obligation to either buy or sell the stock or some other instrument, but let's in this case just talk about stocks, at a specific price known as the strike price, either prior to or on a specific date, depending on the kind of option. So what they're talking about is you can, for a relatively small amount of money per option, you can lock in the right to buy or sell a share of a company at some future date at a certain price. So basically, you're betting if a, if a share of a company X is currently at $10, you can buy an option to buy it at a future date at $11 in case it goes up to $12. Then you could exercise that option. Lock, you've basically locked in a future price for yourself where you can buy it at 11 if it's gone up to 12 If you've ever had employee stock options, that's kind of how they work. I had those back in my Microsoft days. 
a put option, and it's called a put because you can put it up for sale, is let's say you have a bunch of these uh, company X shares that are trade. You bought them at ten. In case they go down to eight at some point in the future, you can buy a put option to be able to sell them for nine dollars at a particular point in time before a particular point in time. So if they go down to eight. You can then exercise your puts and you can uh, get out of them for nine rather than eight. But you have to pay for the privilege of doing that. Um, so that's it's a, it's a financial uh, product options that uh, highly sophisticated investors like Tony and Joe know how to use. But it's, it, for me, it's fun mm. and it's money that I'm, uh, I'm prepared to lose um, everything. Mm. So we're not recommending options as a strategy, but it was a, a it's a diversion for you and, a, and a, yeah. something to do on the margins. Yeah, and as I said, it's a good place to learn because you don't have to put a lot of money in and you, you do get a sense of the market and how some of the more sophisticated investors invest and, and indeed hedge their own holdings either up or, or, or down and provide themselves some cover. So that might be if you have a, a lot of BHP shares, you might decide that to protect their downside, you'll put some money into a cheap option. That's right. That gives you some upside if they if the yep. share price drops. Yeah, yep. okay. All right, and that's basically an insurance investment. Talking about, uh, I guess, strategies and investment, do you use an advisor or do you do it yourself? I don't use a, a human advisor anymore because I, I didn't feel that they added value probably because I didn't have the right advisor. I'm sure there are some great advisors out there. I do inv- subscribe to a number of investment newsletters. I enjoy reading those. Do you want to mention a few here? Oh, Feel people free. like Fat Profits, mm-hmm. uh, Motley, other names escape me for now. But I, I probably use them more for information than their recommendations. Mm-hmm. I know some of them have been, had great success in their portfolios and I would have been probably better off. But it seems to be that whenever I do follow a recommendation, I, I <laughs> pick the wrong one sometimes. And that sort of goes, ouch. And it, it gets back to what I was saying earlier. It's often because I, I, I didn't have a feel for, for, for the company. They did. I didn't. And I either got the timing wrong or was too selective in my or pursuing their single recommendation would I should have been following their portfolio. You mentioned before that you have some property as well. Does that afford you the luxury of leveraging into the stock market by borrowing against the bricks and mortar? Is that something you do? I don't do that. I could do it, but that sort of property is is sort of off limits to... uh, It has its own volatility, obviously, but I don't sort of expose that to the the share market. Okay. I think that's probably all my questions on, on investing. So, Cam, if you have some, jump in now. But like, if we're finished, I just wanted to, or, or park it if you like, but I just wanted to ask you about the future of energy from your Shell experience as well. Obviously, the world's going to continue to need energy and, and a lot more of it. I think even, I think back to my days in Shell, which were many years ago, even then they were they experimented in solar energy and, and were probably too early on that one because that could have been a great business for them if they haven't already reinvested back into it. Hydrogen was always spoken about as, as the answer because it's it's a it's a very clean burning fuel and I suspect between electrification of vehicles or, or industrial processes or the use of hydrogen that we're probably going to see some more emphasis on hydrogen going forward. Obviously, things like nuclear in Australia is a no-no for whatever reason, but that too, you know, has to be a, a way forward in the in the longer term. I've got an awful lot of faith in technology. I'm sure it's not evident to us at the moment, but I'm sure there's some 
geek in California sitting in his garage working on something that, you know, is going to be the big thing for energy in, you know, a year, five years, 10 years, 20 years. We just don't know about it. So whilst there's a lot of obviously political debate around various energy sources, I've got faith that that we, the market will solve those issues in in due course. And of course, Shell's a big investor in natural gas as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, natural gas is a is a great fuel, certainly better than coal, still suffers from some of the, the issues. And the, the, the more sensitive climate change becomes, the, the more sort of emphasis will shift to that. But it's very important to Australia. I own Woodside shares. They've, they've bounced around again for the last couple of years between, what, 25 and $35, but hopefully we'll continue to, or we'll, we'll grow some more, some of their other LNG investments sort of take place. So yeah, LNG is a great a great fuel. Coal's at the bottom, and then you go oil, and then you go LNG, and and then you go into the various renewables. There's enough assortment there that the market will sort out what the answer is. Mm. Okay, all right. I think that's my list of questions done. Cam, do you have any you want to jump in with? Yeah, Joe, we probably don't have time to get too deep into it. And in fact, Tony and I are already planning to do this on another episode. But can you talk a little bit about your view of ethical investing coming out of the uh, fossil fuels industry? It'd be interesting to get your high level view on that. Sure. And, and, uh, you know, that ethical investment, I mentioned before that I'm looking at how to structure a portfolio based around ETFs. An ethical investment or an ethical fund is one of the ETFs I'm looking at to, to invest in. And uh, strangely, if my, my daughter came to me the other week and says she's swapping superannuation funds into an ethical investment superannuation fund, which at her age is fine because she, she doesn't have a lot of money in there. But she's, you know, there's a lot of reasons to look more closely at, at, at those funds and how the the future will shape those funds. Yeah, I think Cameron, you're right. I think I think we need a whole episode on ethical investing. Tony, we might also have to get Joe back on when we publish our new book, The Psychopath Economy, to get him to talk about his experience in the corporate workforce with psychopaths. No names. No names? No, <laughs> that's right. So but I'm guessing you therefore know people you've worked with or for Absolutely. who are psychopaths. <laughs> Learned a lot, learned a lot. Learned a lot, okay. Learned a lot on how to avoid them or how to deal with them? A bit them. of both. I mean, no, not how to be one, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think for the for first first 20 years of my career, I think um, I was exposed to a number of them and, and ended up with some uh, rather nasty habits as a, as a leader, which had to be sort of belted out of me. And uh, I think I'm a much better leader as a result of having experienced that, but also got out of it as well. In the companies you led, were you ever under pressure to... Uh, not be a good corporate citizen to protect profits? Um, oh, I don't, you know, not, not directly. And it gets down to your own sort of value set as, as well. And it's something that um, I've learnt over the years is how to, you know, use your own values to make sure that, you know, what you're doing is, if in a sense, the right thing. And you've got to balance out, obviously, the needs of shareholders, the needs of your team, and ultimately your, your customers. Um, and I think that probably what you know what makes a good leader and a bad leader is that that ability to to get that that balance. Because if you focus on any one of those three to the exclusion of the other two, you, you're going to drop the ball. And would you add a like a fourth shareholder in there, being the community or the wider market? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. 
So, so you seem to balance that well. Do you, you must have been exposed to people who didn't. Yes. Yeah. I, uh, you know, particularly in 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 the pursuit of of profit, and, and typically it was your team that probably suffered that more than anything else. But again, corporate life ebbs and flows as well. So, you know, are you a buyer? Are you an acquirer? Are you a, a seller? A, um, uh, you know what? What do your shareholders actually want? Are they in there for the short term, for the long term? So, having worked in companies like Shell, like Colesmeyer, Harris Scarf was actually owned by private equity when I was working there. Uh, my time in Papua New Guinea was a, again a public company, but PNG is a, a much different environment than than Australia in terms of governance. Much more challenging, if you like. So, I don't think there's 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 one answer. You've got to get it right for the environment that you actually operate in. But if you don't have your own fundamental set of values that are good values, you're going to end up in a mess. Sooner or later, you you either get caught or exposed. Yeah, good point. Just to wrap up from an investing side of things, the the sort of target audience, in my mind, for this show, Joe, people who are wanting to take investing more seriously than they have in the past, and they're looking for... Uh, some better in financial literacy, uh, investment strategies, methodologies. Um, so do you have, if, if you had a single piece of advice of what to do or what not to do as a, somebody who's just taking investing more seriously for the first time, anything come to it mind? Would, it depends what age they are. As I said, if, if you're younger, you can probably play around a little bit more, but Generally speaking, I'd be keeping it simple and comfortable. If you're uncomfortable with what you're doing, um, you know, you're not able to sleep, you wake up in the morning going, oh my God, what's, you know, what's happened? You, you're going in too hard. There's, there's a place for that, no time for that. But generally speaking, stick with what you know, keep it simple and, you know, make sure you can sleep at night. Good advice. Yeah, very good. All right. Well, I'm good. Thanks, Joe. Um, and uh, yeah, really appreciate your insights in all those things. Fascinating stuff. Pleasure. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, thank you, Joe. It's uh, good to chat. We've been doing it for many years and it's yeah. good to have it down uh, on tape. Excellent. <laughs> well, that's this week's episode. Uh, a little bit different. Uh, no stock analysis. We were prepared to do one. Um, I think we we're going to do Stanmore Coal this week, but um, had the opportunity to chat with Joe. And it's not every day you get to get insights from somebody with that range of experience. And we thought we'd take it. So thanks very much to Joe for coming on. Thank you for subscribing and being a QAV Club member. And we'll do another episode soon where we will get back to stock analysis in a couple of weeks we have another guest coming on though alan kohler who was kind enough to give us a plug in his weekend update uh, newsletter last weekend is going to be a guest on the show so hang out for that one that should be fascinating we'll talk to him about his investment strategies and uh yeah we'll get back to doing some more stock analysis next week be good take care cameron out